is what we'll be. Um, I know your bulletin says through 19, but we're actually going to do 1 through 10 um, this morning because of the weightiness of kind of what I want to talk about this morning. I want you to stop just for a minute, and I want you to think about why you are here. Um, not like why you're on this planet, but why you are here this morning, why you attend church, uh, why you attend this church. And I'm glad that you are here, um, but I, I do want you to think through this concept of, of why you do this every single week, wh- why you're a part of this. And so, because here in the South, <clears throat> there's, there's a lot of different understandings of why people do church, why people go to church. And, and, I, and what I've seen in the South, and this is based on other pastors that I've talked to, research that I've done, um, there's, there's only really about five major reasons why people will go to a church. And, and most of it's consumeristic. So I'm just going to read off what they are. And, and I, I want to kind of assess where we're at this morning. Uh, the first reason why people come, is the number one reason why people come is the preaching. And so I don't know if, uh, if you all feel sorry for me or not, um, but maybe that's what it is. But, um, but yeah, so we're thankful for the growth, but that is the number one people reason why they come. Now, that, that reason is not, I want solid preaching or I want, you know, gospel-centered preaching. It's just preaching in general. So that can go into, this guy makes me laugh, this guy has funny stories or he's got good analogies that help me, or he has skinny jeans. It could go anything that, you know, is involved with preaching. And so preaching is typically the first thing. The second thing is, is kids' ministry. Uh, that's the second reason why most people choose church. Uh, the third would be uh, the music. And so people want, always want to know, well, what's the music like? If the music's good, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back. Uh, Fourth, unfortunately, is doctrine. Uh, doctrine theology is, goes down a little bit less than, you know, skinny jeans. So, um, and fifth is community. So if people are nice to them, they'll typically go back. So those are some of the top kind of five that I've seen talking to other pastors, some of the research that I've put together. That's what people typically look for. But, but I got to tell you, that is sad, all right? That is sad to me that this is what it's come down to. That when we are looking to even go to a church or find a church, we have condensed it down to how well they perform in an hour and a half, right? And that's what we do, is it not? That's, that's how we gauge health of a church. That's how we go back to a church. That's how we don't go back to a church. Well, preaching was pretty good, but the, the music just didn't have my favorite songs, you know? And, and we kind of gauge it on this concept. And, and I got to tell you, Jesus did not die so that we would gather and just hear preaching and good songs. Jesus did not die so that we could have a children's ministry. He didn't. By the way, I have a pretty radical view on children's ministry. I believe that parents should disciple their children, all right? Is that radical or what? I mean, I just think that, all right? But some people think, oh, you're supposed to do that. That's your goal, right? When I was in youth ministry, I remember parents would tell me, you know, my son's not changing. He's been in the youth program for whatever years. I'm like, well, um, he's in your house all day long, right? (laughs) And so here's the thing. I don't think Jesus died so that we would just have a gathering even on Sunday morning. Otherwise, nowhere in the Bible you'd have to show me that it has to happen on Sunday morning. I mean, it can happen any time. It's, it's the body of Christ that gathers, and I think it does, there, there, there does need to be assembly. There's sacraments that need to take place. But Jesus did not die for a performance on Sunday morning. And so here's what I want to, to see this morning. I want us to get a new vision of a gospel-centered church and what it's supposed to look like, that it is a community of faith built around the person and work of Jesus that we've been redeemed by Jesus and we are 
doing life together because of what Jesus has done for us. And this is what Luke 17, I believe, it sets this up well for us this morning. Look in Luke 17, verse 1. And he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are what? Sure to come. But woe to the one to those whom they have come. Now, what you're seeing is this. What Jesus is telling his disciples, he's coming right off these parables about really what the new covenant can do, how radical Jesus, his teachings are to those who would abide and stay in the law. Jesus elevates everything that he says has been elevated beyond the law. Jesus is calling for radical lifestyle. And then he kind of goes into this story with his disciples. Temptation is sure to come. Now, Jesus knew this, but Jesus is a high priest. It's Hebrews 4.15. I'll just read it. Hebrews 4.15 says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without what? Without sin. So in every single way, Jesus is saying temptations is sure to come. Jesus himself knew that because he had been tempted in every way, except he didn't sin. Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life. But his disciples, he knew they were not him. And so he's saying this, temptation is sure to come. Temptation is going to come after you. But here's what 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says. I love this. No temptation has overtaken you. That is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So what he's saying is this. Every person is sure to face temptation. Everybody. It will come. But he's saying this. Jesus sympathizes with us because he is, has been tempted in every way. But not only that... There's not any amount of temptation that because of the Holy Spirit in you, that you can't fight, that you can't overcome. There's a difference between temptation and sin. Jesus was tempted, but he did not sin. We are tempted, we often sin. When we sin, it brings birth, gives birth to, to uh, when we t- are tempted, it gives birth to sin, which gives birth to death, and we're given into it. So Jesus is saying this, it is sure to come. So is it fair to say that probably most people in this room right now are tempted in some way with something? Is that a fair statement to say? Okay, this side of the room is better, more aware than this side. Um, but yes, I mean, here's just an example of this. With it being this summer, all right, with it being the summer, the amount of clothing that isn't being worn right now is astounding, all right? And so I, I, see, I go to Target, and I'll see girls, and they're wearing clothes that would be too small for my seven-month-year-old, right? And it's, it's scary. And, and so now with that, I see guys who are falling into temptation because they've got girls that are naked around them in grocery stores, right? It's like, what, do I, what was he supposed to do, man? I'm just, I'm just wanting to get some eggs, and now I'm like struggling all of a sudden, right? This girl, naked girl, calls into the grocery store. And it's like, 
so, so here you have this element here of, man, temptation can be this seasonal thing. And not only that, on the flip side of that whole deal, n- women are doing that. And now what other women have to do is they have to reach this certain level of this is what I have to do to be attractive. So there's this pressure of culture here that's pressing in on you, and you're tempted to look a certain way. Men are tempted to lust. Women are tempted to look a certain way. And that's just a seasonal deal. I, not, another thing, a part of this, this summer is this. Man, people just are tempted to get lazy in the summer. Man, I, I owe myself a break, right? I'm going to spend whatever. I'm going to go to Atlanta Beach. I'm going to spend all the money. Like, you know, it's just kind of this attitude of like, I owe this to myself, this like sort of entitlement that we're tempted to do. And man, I, I'm just saying this as a pastor and the, the, the conversations that I have, more and more men are struggling this way. More and more women are struggling this way. It's always this kind of time of year. I mean, some people, it's not even seasonal at all. It's just like a lifelong, I'm always tempted. This thing is always stressing me out. This lust issue, this idolatry issue, this gossip issue is always sort of pressing in on me. And I'm always tempted in this way. I'm just fighting it. Just fighting it. So Jesus is saying this, Woe to the one through whom they come. And he explains further what he means by this word woe. Look at what he says in verse 2. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he would cast into the sea, then that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Now, a millstone would have been, uh, it was like a heavy stone that would crush grain. So when grain was being processed, it was this heavy stone that would crush grain. If you've ever seen like a picture of like Stone Age looking stuff, it's like this big wheel, and it's got a hole in the middle. And Jesus is saying, listen, if a person falls into temptation, it's better for him, literally, to stick his head in the middle of that wheel and just jump in the water and let him drown him, right? It's a pretty bold statement to hear Jesus speak to his disciples this way. It's kind of like the whole deal of, like, if your arm causes you to sin, cut it off, right? If your eyes cause you to sin, gouge them out. It's the same language that Jesus is using. It's very, very, very convicting. So Jesus is saying there is this danger because you are allowing yourself to sin, but it's also this danger of allowing others to sin. Now, I want to unpack this a little bit, and this is kind of where I want to go for the rest of the time. How I unpack this is is very key. So listen to how how this kind of plays itself out here in the South, I think. Most of the time when we think about causing another person to sin, this is what I've heard growing up. This is kind of where we go with this. I've heard it. This said like this, well, I, went to, I graduated from high school, I went to a, a Christian school in upstate New York, and, and in my opinion it was great and helpful for me. There were some very legalistic tendencies that this particular place had, alright? So this is what it would say. Don't go to the movie theater. Because if you go to a movie theater and someone sees you buying a ticket, they're not going to think that you're going to be seeing Aladdin, that you're going to be seeing the worst movie. And then because they saw you, knowing that you're a Christian, saw this movie, they're going to go watch the worst, and they're going to fall into this deep temptation all because you went and watched the movie theater. So just don't go. If, just don't go. Just avoid that whole thing altogether. Or don't eat at a restaurant at the bar because if someone sees you at the bar with a glass that's tall, they'll assume that you are drunk and then they are going to go to this lifelong pattern of drunkenness and abuse in every area of their life. It's just going to be a disaster because Pastor Ben ate at Applebee's, right? (laughs) 
And so it's just this whole thing. It's just broken down. It's just kind of this mingled thing of this is what it means because if you, if some, if you tempt somebody this way, if you're falling, you're just going to make someone fall into this trajectory that's just going to ruin their life, right? I have never, and I've been in ministry for 10 years, right? I have never, ever heard that testimony. I mean, I was doing great. I was going to Bible study. And then I saw a pastor at Applebee's and it ruined my life. I'm an addict now. I can't stay off this stuff, right? I have never heard that. You know, I, heard, I saw Pastor Scott watching, you know, Terminator 3, and it was over after that, right? Never heard that. Never heard that. Here's what I've heard. Here's what I've heard. And here's what I'm afraid of here, all right? When someone sins, and when someone is being tempted in every way, and when sin is present in a person's life, Here's the dangerous thing. Nothing is said and nothing happens. And that is the worst thing that I think the church could ever do. That we see a person who is living in sin or falling into temptation or giving in to temptation. And the church, the body of Christ, does nothing about it. Doesn't say anything. We don't do anything. We turn a blind eye, and what we do is we create a culture of silence. So the first story I described, I I never see that as a pastor, but on this side of this thing, I hear it all the time. And my dad was in church. I heard this whole steal deal from a good friend of mine. My dad was in an adulterous relationship. He was a leader at the church, and no one said anything about it in the church. I hear that all the time. I hear it all the time of this guy is leading in this way or this person is serving this way and no one ever took him aside and called him out in love, tried to correct that. Never. And I hear that all the time. Way more than the other story. So what I'm afraid of is this. The church, we create this atmosphere and culture and honestly, a lot of new church plants, when they sell culture, it's all about Look at how we do things different on Sunday. Look at our band. Look at all the, you know, look at the preaching. It's relevant, right? It's like all this, like, stuff that we try to sell on. That's not the culture I even care about. The culture that I think we need to be after is not having a culture of silence. It's a culture of life on life where we care so much about the mission of the gospel going out into the unreached places that we take care of things in-house, Because if we're silent in here, man, we're going to be just as silent and just as deadly out there. So, man, it's so important that the culture that I want to sell is not like this. Who cares about what everything, how it all goes down here on Sunday? And I know I freak out about it and I'm a spaz, like everybody knows that. But the culture that I'm after is how are people doing life on life together? How are people connecting life on life together? And so what Jesus does is he walks through these disciples with this big issue of this culture that avoids silence. This is what he says in verse 3. Pay attention to yourselves. That is the very first thing he talks about when you're confronted, when temptation, when you see someone else in temptation. He says this, 
pay attention to yourselves. I've just recently figured this out, but this is a common theme throughout the New Testament. It is overwhelming how many times you see this phrase. When you see Paul, um, you see this church in, in Ephesus that's blowing up and exploding. No place in Asia had ever seen anything like the church of Ephesus. Paul talks to the Ephesian elders, and this is what he says to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Paul says this to young Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, 16. Keep a close watch on yourselves and on the teaching. Jesus says it, similar language in Luke 12. He says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Luke 21, he says, watch yourselves. It's a constant theme in scripture in the New Testament, specifically for those who are making disciples, which by the way, is all of us. If we believe in Jesus, we are disciples. We are disciple makers. That's what we're called to be as scripture lays out for us. So he's saying this, as you make disciples, the very first thing that you are looking at in your life is knowing yourself well, paying attention to yourself. Pay attention to yourself. So preaching, you pay attention to preaching? Yes. He says, pay attention to your teaching, but he says this before that. Pay attention to yourselves. As a pastor, should I pay attention to the flock? Yes, absolutely. But what does he tell the Ephesian elders? Pay attention to yourself. There's this constant theme in Scripture. Watch yourself. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees. Keep a close eye on yourselves. This is why I love reality shows like The Bachelor. Now, for five minutes um, when I watch it. Here you have a dozen girls who are completely unaware of themselves. They have no clue. Like, they don't know anything about themselves. And they're on this show, and they're like, he loves me. We made a connection. And then, like, five minutes later, he's dating and making out with some other girl in a hot tub. I'm like, are you serious? He doesn't love you. Like, you're, you're insane if you think he loves you. And they're, they're so clueless. Like, it's like they don't even think I'm going to be broadcasted in front of America and say these ridiculous things, all right? It's amazing to me. I mean, I spent, my son and my wife and I, we spent an hour watching old YouTube clips of the worst American idol, idol performers. And they're, every single one that's horrible always thinks that they can sing. It's amazing to me. They go in and they're like, I'm, I'm going to be... And they, they cannot even... They, they don't know... They can't even get the words right of the songs. They, don't, they cannot even carry a tune. It's embarrassing. And afterwards, they're like cussing at Simon and giving him bad gestures. And they're you know, blocking it out with American Idol you know, symbol and all that stuff. And they're like, they're angry and upset. And it's just these people that just don't, they don't have any self-awareness at all. And the second thing is this. I'm like, who would let you do this that really loves you? Don't they love you enough to say, you shouldn't put yourself out there in front of America to do this. You sound horrible. Like, go into computer science. I mean, I don't know. Do something else. Like, become a, you know, like, do something else, right? Become a communications major. Like, you know what I'm saying? It's like, do anything else. And so you just have this. (laughs) Or biblical studies. All right. Um, So you have these people that, 
They don't know themselves. And what Paul is saying here, a true disciple, they know themselves well. They're well aware of the temptations that they're facing. They're walking out. They're aware of their gifts. They're aware of their weaknesses. I mean, Charles Spurgeon, the, the prince of preachers, says this. Beware of no man more than yourselves. We carry our worst enemies with us. One of the best things in the world that ever happened to my wife and I was biblical counseling. When I sat down, and I, I and a lot of people are like, oh, he's really messed up. I think everybody needs biblical counseling, all right? Every single person. When I sat down to this counselor, my wife and I have had, we have some pretty messed up family backgrounds, um, but hers is just like slightly more messed up than mine. And so I thought, certainly, the counselor is going to spend way more time dealing with her stuff because I'm, I'm, I've got to figure I've been a believer since I was 11 years old. You know, this is going to be fine. He's going to spend more time talking about stuff with her. Man, that guy, he did not even look at her. Like, he was like, he's just all over me, asking me all these questions. I was crying. And he said, he goes, Ben, no one ever told you in your life that you're a weirdo? I said, No. And he's just speaking this truth in my life. And I'm going, he's right. Like, and I leave there and I say, you never told me I was a weirdo. Why don't you love me? Why don't you love me? And so here's what that did, though, is because someone was able to lovingly speak this truth into my life and made me aware of my temper. That's what, one of the things, the issues that he addressed. I was able to stop and think and say, I need to be cautious in this area of my life. I need to be aware and I need to know myself. I need to pay attention to this area in my life. So this is what he says. This is what Jesus says. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you, listen to this, seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent. You must what? Forgive him. Forgive him. Now somehow the word rebuke has these negative connotations. And it's probably started, the negative connotations were probably started by someone who's been rebuked and didn't like it. But here's what he's saying here. And this is, this is biblical context that I want to give you the weight of the word rebuke. Based on the idea that temptations are sure to come. Based on the idea that falling into the temptations can drown you and can drown others based on the idea that temptation is dangerous he's saying this love your brother or sister enough to engage them in the gospel this true discipleship and true brotherhood or sisterhood and what it means to be a body of christ that means that you are aware of the dangers of sin and you are aware of how where sin ends death you're aware of that. that. Sin destroys families, individuals, homes, and churches, and that you love your brother or sister enough to go to them and engage them in the gospel. He says, uses this word rebuke. Is rebuke a bad thing based on that idea? No, it's not. See, Matthew 18 is very clear. It's the church discipline kind of chapter in Scripture. By the way, that's where the, um, the phrase, where two or more are gathered, don't pray that prayer because it's about church discipline. It's not about church 
uh, attendance, right? God, we know when two or more are gathered, uh, you'll be here. Like, really? I think he's there whether or not two or more are there anyway, right? If you're in your car and you're a believer, he's there, okay? You don't have to pray that. He's like, thanks. Thanks for the invite. I'm already here, right? (laughs) By the way, it has nothing to do with church. I mean, it has nothing to do with gatherings. It's all about church discipline. Where two or more gathered, there, there you will be also. It's talking about how believers interact with each other. This is what he says about believers in Matthew 18. If a brother has sinned against you, you go and tell him his fault. He says that you've gained a brother. If that doesn't work, you take one or two others with this person. So if you go and confront someone in their sin or their temptation, they're falling into it and they don't receive it well, you say, all right, I'm going to ask somebody else. They think you, you know, have this tendency. They're going to come with me, and we sit down, we both work through the gospel. If they don't do it, then it goes to the church. The church has to deal with it. It's the body of Christ. And i got to tell you, it is not fun, but we've done it here at Integrity. And we've, we've had to ask people to leave. And it's not because we don't like that person. It's because we love everyone else that's here because we know how dangerous sin is. We just can't let this thing, we can't have this culture of silence. We're just not going to let it's going to be silent about sin. Speak into sin. Because we love the gospel. Because we love the body of Christ. And he says this, if he repents, you forgive him. I, I know the phrase that we always hear and we always borrow from scripture is forgive and forget. God forgives and forgets. Uh, what, what that means is it's not that he has this divine amnesia. Like, oh, I've all of a sudden forgot about Ben's past. It's not that. It's actually what that means is God does no no longer because Jesus died in my place as a substitute for my sins. That he lived the life that I should have lived. That he died the death that I was condemned to die. Because Jesus did that for me, no longer does God bring a charge against me. That's what forgiveness is by biblical definition. That no longer does God bring a charge against Ben Tugwell. Not because Ben Tugwell's done something right. It's because Jesus has died in my place. And from that, I've repented and I believe in his name. So that's, that's what forgiveness is. So forgiveness is not you just forget things in the past. That's impossible. What he's saying is you no longer bring a charge against someone. And that is very difficult. And I would rather the whole men in black thing where you scan someone's face and remember that you forget the past. Like I would rather that happen. But it's hard not to bring a charge up against someone once it's already been dealt with. And he's saying this seven times this happens. Now, the law would have required, Judaism would have required three times for a person to be forgiven. So, if you, you know, if you continue to sin against someone, you just can forgive them three times. But after that, like, you can lay down the smack down, right? I, I guess that's how that went. But he's saying seven times. And so, again, this is the new covenant just like what Scott talked about last week, it's the new covenant elevating the things in the law, elevating the things that they understood, rocking their entire world, bringing in a totally different culture in how they understood forgiveness. By the way, seven, it, it means continually. It's this number of perfection. So he's saying continually have forgiveness in your heart toward those who've wronged you. I've got to say this because I think it's important that you sometimes need to take time in forgiving and allow time for the Holy Spirit to work on a person's life who's wronged you, that the Holy Spirit would bring up repentance. Because as it says, when he repents, you forgive. 
But if they don't repent, it says, biblically, we can't hang on to our anger and bitterness toward that person. We just have to take it to the cross. Say, God, this is in your hands. Would you take control of this person's life? I plead with you, God, to bring this person to a place of repentance. So what's happening here is he's drawing out something that's very different to his disciples. I mean, you don't think that if you just had to forgive someone three times, you don't think that the person who's wronging you would pick up on that? Like, it's like the whole, like, don't let me count the three thing. Like, eventually, like, I'm going to wait and wait and disobey for three more seconds. By the way, parents, it doesn't work. Okay, don't do it. All right, it doesn't work. Don't let me count to three. Oh, I've got three more seconds to disobey you. I cannot wait. I'm going to hang on and then right at the last second, I'm going to make a jump shot and just come right in, right? That's kind of how that works. And so here, here's what is happening here. What would typically go down is this new, well, I've got three times and then I'm just... Now, I'm going to stop doing what I'm doing, but they're going to forgive me because they're idiots, right? They're going to keep on forgiving me three more times and I'm over, right? She's saying, no, even when they continue to rip you off, you forgive them. Bring it to the cross. So it's a radical difference here that he's doing. Now, we struggle, I think, with this understanding of forgiveness. And I think the apostles did as well. Because they're used to this idea of just three times and we're good. But when he brings this out, I love the apostles' response here. Look in verse 5. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you can say to the mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the seed, and it would obey you. Now, Jesus is saying they have enough faith to already do this. Okay? He's saying it's impossible for this type of tree to be uprooted and moved by you just commanding it to do it. He's like, you have enough faith to forgive. He's saying the amount, the small amount in a believer's life of faith that it requires, it, it, it's a very small amount for a believer to forgive. And here's why. It is a basic concept of Christianity and what it means to know Jesus. We forgive out of response of us being forgiven. And I think part of the problem is we don't understand, because we don't know ourselves, we don't want to forgive. Anytime you don't want to forgive, it's because you don't understand how much you've been forgiven of. And we land in this world of, well, I wouldn't have done it that way, or I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have done that particular thing, or I wouldn't have said that. No, here's the thing. You did do that particular thing. You did say that. You did have that attitude in your heart. You did think that way. And here's the thing. In spite of all of that, Jesus died for you. You did do all those things. You did it to him. And you've been forgiven by him. And so when you are confronted with people who have wronged you, you just go back to the cross. How have I offended Jesus? In every way. In every way I've offended Jesus. And he's forgiven me, and he's died for me. So my response is that when people are forget or, or have wronged me or offended me, I go back to the cross and I say, because Jesus has forgiven me, I have to forgive other people. It would be wrong. It would be silly for me to act as, I, as if I have not wronged God. So it's this basic idea that Jesus is bringing into, but it sounds so radical to the disciples. 
because they are on the brink of what Jesus is about to do, which is die on the cross. Look in verse 7. He brings more. He illustrates this even more. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing and keeping sheep say to him, when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at the table. Will you not rather say to him, prepare supper for me, and dress properly, serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he think that the servant, because he did what is commanded, so that you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what is our duty. So Jesus is describing this relationship between an, 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 an owner and a slave or a servant. He's saying the way that the owner has over the slave is he doesn't just thank him for things that he's supposed to do. Now, he's not, Jesus is not advocating we should be rude for people that, we, that work under us or that serve us in any way. He's not saying that at all. Uh, rather, what Jesus is doing is he's showing us a glimpse of the gospel. It's coming out of this understanding of what it means to forgive. We are supposed to give as, uh, forgive as believers. That is a, an automatic response of a believer. It should be. Of a new heart in Jesus, the automatic response is forgiveness. Just like an automatic response from a servant would be, what can I do for my master? And so this is what he's showing here. Now, now verse 10, I think, is the key verse here. I'm going to read this again. So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants, and we have only done what was our duty. Now, this is what he's saying. If you've forgiven someone, you've only done what Jesus has already done for you. And he uses this language, unworthy servants. The King James actually says it really well, unprofitable servants, meaning there is nothing, nothing that you can do to add up merits for yourself. Some of you are going to read this verse and walk out of here thinking that the gospel is about doing. And that is the most anti-gospel thing that you could hear. That the gospel is about doing. The gospel is about what Jesus has already done. And our role is to respond with a grateful heart. We are unworthy servants. God, I'm not worthy of your forgiveness. So my response is just to forgive others. It's not about doing. I mean, Ephesians 2.10 says this, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So even our good works, this has been prepared beforehand. So based on what we've covered today, temptation is sure to come. So we respond, we lovingly rebuke those who are fighting temptation, who are falling into sin. And radical forgiveness needs to be a part of our lives. And what Jesus is doing is this. He's changing the culture of how we normally think about community, about life, about church. He's bringing these all together. And so this is the culture that we need to strive for as a church body. This is what we need to be after. 
Man, here's what I love about integrity. It seems like every single week, and I am not exaggerating when I say this, every single week I hear story after story about this guy sees this guy struggling, this gal sees this gal struggling, they see this person needs encouragement, they see this person needs to grow and be discipled, and there's always, almost always, I better say almost, almost always, there's someone that goes into that person's life and begins to speak into their life. Bro, this is what's going on. And I see you struggle in this area, and I want to hold you accountable. I want to lovingly help you with this. I see this other person. Man, that dude's in sin. He needs to be, he needs to be challenged. He needs to be corrected. Uh, I see this other person that, that's a new believer. I need to go and disciple this person. That person's struggling. I love that about integrity. Man, I can go to the coffee shack, and it's almost always I see someone in there from our church, and they're doing some kind of discipleship meeting, and it's encouraging. It, it's encouraging to see that. And so this is the culture that we're after and I want to see more of it. I want to see more of it. I don't, I don't think I see it from everybody. I want to see it from everybody. So here's my question. How, how are you doing with that? Is that a part of your life where that's even a priority for you? I'm not saying you serve the church. I'm saying this. You should be biblical in how you live. You should be missional in how you live. This is the missional life. You see someone who's struggling, and you go into their life, and you begin to speak into your life. And we work super hard at this. That's why life groups, they're not just Bible studies. We have meals together. We have accountability together because we want you in someone's life that they can speak into your life in such a way. People hide behind Bible studies all the time. I mean, Green, Greenville, I see people, I'm a part of this Bible study, I'm this part of it, and they're like, trying every other Bible study, it's like a Bible story junkies, it's like Bible story drugs or something, like, we need to have AA for Bible study people, right? <laughs> and, and that is not gospel life on life, we need to have life on life where we're challenging each other, and, and honestly, rebuking each other, and encouraging each other, because we love the body of Christ, and we care about the gospel being proclaimed in the city. So, are you in life groups? Are you in life groups? When we relaunch in the fall, are you thinking about even going? Is that even coming on your radar? Because here's the thing. If you're coming here just to hear songs and preaching, you are going to get bored. You're going to miss a big piece of what we do here at Integrity. Are you afraid of rebuking another person? That's part of the gospel. A believer in Jesus does that. Is there somebody in your life that you know is falling into temptation and you're just not going to go there? You're just going to keep it safe. Are you struggling with radical forgiveness as Jesus describes? Do you have people that have wronged you and you've not gone and you've not had that hard conversation and you've walked through the process of forgiveness with them? This is the culture that we're after here at Integrity. And we are radically pursuing relationships together, discipleship together, this is what we're after. So, my goal this morning is this, that as we respond to the gospel this morning, that we would do everything that we can by surrendering to Jesus, the help of the Holy Spirit, the Word of God speaking to our lives, that we do everything to fight a culture of silence, we are after a culture that speaks into each other's lives and we do life 
together. Can we do that this morning? Can we, can, we, can we ask the Lord to do that in us this morning? Let's do that this morning. Let's pray.